Earlier this summer, we heard the story of Jacob and Esau, a powerful story of sibling rivalry in which one son is favored by the mother and it causes much pain to the other son. This week, we hear of Joseph, the favorite son of Jacob, and how his other brothers came to hate their spoiled brother and sought to kill him, but were finally persuaded to sell him into slavery instead. We're used to these stories in the Bible, but if we try to hear them as if we just read them in last night's newspaper, we would be appalled at the cruelty and dysfunction of the family. Our biblical forebears were not glowing examples of warm family life. On the contrary, they lied and cheated and abused one another in ways that, if seen with fresh eyes, might make one's hair stand on end. Showing parental favoritism is often unconscious, and as such, it is a cruelty to the less favored child. I'm increasingly convinced that much of the pain we feel from others is because people are simply unaware of themselves. Jesus tells us to love others as ourselves. If Jacob could, put, could have put himself in the shoes of one of his other sons, he might have glimpsed the pain they felt. I recall working at a home for mentally retarded young women many years ago. One of the girls did not seem retarded to me, perhaps a bit slower intellectually than average, but she made up for it with a very warm and generous heart. I was puzzled as why she was there. And then one day her parents arrived. They were handsome people, clearly well-to-do and very fashionable. With them was a beautiful blonde child, a girl in a very pretty dress. They had come to visit their other daughter, who clearly adored them, but her enthusiasm was not matched with theirs. The blonde child showed off her dancing and her vivaciousness, while the other child stood by, plainer and duller in comparison, and I came to the sad understanding of why she had been boarded at the group home for the retarded. I do not believe her parents understood what they had done, Yet I held on to the comfort that she would probably find more love and acceptance at the group home than she would have in her parents' home. Joseph's story is an enduring one because Joseph, like Cinderella in the folktale, was resourceful and honorable. He learned from his hardships and found ways to overcome them. And in the process, the rough edges were smoothed off, and by the end of his life, we see a kind and wise man emerge from what was once a spoiled and arrogant boy. Our biblical ancestors were a motley crew, but they do show us what is possible if we become self-aware and learn to love others, as Joseph ultimately learned to love his brothers. And not only do they show us what is possible for ourselves, but also for all of those who irritate us as Joseph did his brothers, and who we might like to consign to a ditch. In Paul's letter to Rome, he talks about the importance of hearing God's message if we are to learn to love. He's speaking of those without faith and asks, how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear? without someone to proclaim him? 
And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We Episcopalians are notoriously awkward and uncomfortable evangelists. We want to spread God's word and we would like for it to be done in an elegant and well-mannered fashion, preferably without involving us directly. But Paul is asking an important series of questions, and he is asking us. I think it might be easier if we frame the questions a little differently. One of my favorite hymns these days is, Will You Come and Follow Me? from the Iona community in Scotland. It asks a series of questions, as Paul does, but they're rephrased. Will you leave yourself behind if I but call your name? Will you care for cruel and kind and never be the same? Will you risk the hostile stare should your life attract or scare? Will you let me answer prayer in you and you in me? What does it mean to love cruel and kind? What does it mean to answer prayer for others, to respond as the body of Christ even to someone you don't like. How else will Christ be known if we don't take the opportunity to let him be? Do we really want to give that privilege back unused? I also want to say something about feet. Paul quoted Isaiah saying that the feet of one who brings good news are beautiful. It's not the lips or the voice that's beautiful. It's the feet, without which the good tidings would never have come. Many may have thought the news was wonderful and worth passing on, but one of them put their shoe leather into the effort. When the disciples met, met the risen Christ, they did not grasp his hands or reach for his face or for his heart. They reached for those ruined, tired, worn dogs that had carried him all around Galilee and into Jerusalem, where they also bore the weight and the injuries of the cross. Frederick Buechner says that if we want to know who we really are, not simply who we would like to think we are, look at the places where our feet have taken us. Now we turn to our gospel. Last January, I had the great experience and joy of sailing on the Sea of Galilee. It was a calm day and the sun was shining. We did get to feel the boat rocking because the wind came up, but it was enjoyable and not threatening. For many on the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, it was one of the high points. The Sea of Galilee is actually a large lake, and it was the scene of much of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was known as a Galilean, and a number of his followers were fishermen on that body of water. The boat that hosted us was similar to fishing boats of the first century, and we were able to see fisherfolk near the shoreline hauling in their nets. It had the same feel as any area with water, boats, and a wharf. It had the same sights and sounds, smells, and tastes as does Santa Cruz or Monterey or Moss Landing, with fishing boats, sun and water, gear and tackle. But the difference was the names on the signs. 
Tiberius, Magdala, Genesaret, Capernaum, Bethsaida, all names we know from the Bible. And the experience was redolent with the knowledge that Jesus had known this particular place. The miracle we heard about in today's gospel is unusual because it was only witnessed by the disciples. It occurred soon after Jesus learned of the death of John the Baptist. He had gone with his disciples to a mountain to pray, but the crowds followed him, and that's when he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fishes. Then he sent the disciples on ahead of him to the other shore, to Gennesaret, and he stayed alone to pray. The disciples were out on the sea when the storm arose, and that's when he went out to them, walking on the water. Walking on water is almost a cliché. It's used to describe someone who's considered beyond reproach. It's also emblematic of Jesus' ministry for those with a smattering of knowledge of the Gospels. As a kid, my sister and I loved Mad Magazine, and I remember one advertisement probably made by some of the humorists on the, on the staff, and it showed a man with two good-sized inflated rafts buckled to his feet, walking across a swimming pool. And the ad read, Wow, your congregation. But if we move beyond the cliché, the actual events of the gospel accounts are compelling. Jesus was very moved by the death of John the Baptist and had sought solitude. John was his precursor, and he clearly understood his life was now in danger. He needed time alone. First the crowds prevented solitude, and then the storm came. At dawn, Jesus saw the boat tossing on the waves and went out to it, walking through the storm. The disciples were terrified and at first thought it was a ghost until he spoke to them. Peter, impetuous and eager as always, wanted to walk on the waves, but he faltered. Jesus first calmed the disciples, and then he calmed the storm. He demonstrated that he was able to traverse the unruly and terrifying forces that seas can represent, the depths of danger and chaos, the unconscious place of our terrors, and he could soothe and calm our greatest fears. We're living in a time when many are fearful about the state of the world. Threats and hostile rhetoric from North Korea and from our president make us very uneasy. And yesterday, a woman was killed protesting white supremacy. Many may feel a little bit like Dorothy Parker, who Anne Louise quoted to me as asking, what fresh hell do we have today? In light of these events, I would like to urge you to reflect on the words of Isaiah that Paul quoted. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. With the 24-hour news cycle of worrisome and bad news, we need to find the good news and share it. And we do have good news. Today we have very good news about the end of the search here at St. Luke's. But as we share all good news, we would do well to meditate on the feet of Jesus, walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee, going out to console and calm those in need and able to calm the forces of chaos and fear.
Teresa of Avila once said, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Amen. Amen.